So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. I've never introduced myself as Dr. Beth Holland, so I want you guys to know this is the absolute first time I've done that. Um, normally, I'm just Beth. Uh, so I'm your colleague from EdTech Teacher and just finished my doctorate a month ago and enjoying a summer for the first time ever and really excited these days about researching things having to do with um, education, learning, science, and education leadership. So tell us a bit about um, the the program with regards to how it relates to the work you did prior, or what are the things that the focal point of the program, and what did you get out of it a bit? And then and then we'll get into like you know, so what have you been thinking about, and what what how can you help teachers with their current practice? Sure. So I was in the entrepreneurial leadership and education program at Johns Hopkins, and it's a fully online education doctorate that is interestingly designed around the idea that I had to come in and identify a problem of practice. And then once I identified what I thought that problem was, I spent an entire year researching it from every possible angle. And one of the things that I was looking at had to do with the work that we've done at EdTech Teacher, which is, you know, we go into different schools and districts, we work with these amazing educators in different places and where there might be pockets like a classroom a teacher or maybe even a building within a district that's doing really amazing stuff I was never seeing it across an entire system and so what I wanted to understand is why isn't there that systemic you know every single classroom doing you know these really you know student-centered inquiry-based innovative kinds of things in their classrooms and it narrowed me down after a year of looking at this from every possible angle, like history, sociology, anthropology, neuroscience, learning science. Um, one of the challenges I found was commu the communication between different leadership stakeholders. So central office, building principals, instructional coaches, you know, technology coordinators. There wasn't this like common understanding of what they were really trying to achieve in words that had meaning and action. So after a year of took me a year to really like clearly articulate that problem I then spent a year designing a potential solution and so I was looking at well how could I create a combination of like a learning platform and also a series of tools to facilitate conversations between these leaders um, which I then implemented in three different districts in the Northeast and measured and wrote up and what was fascinating is uh, in the end of all of this it was a great program where, you know, it really forced me to look in so many different areas. Um, you know, my, my program totally didn't work. Like the, the digital tools that I built, nobody used them. I had very low participation. I had lots of people who didn't even bother to complete the post test, like all kinds of stuff. But in, in really starting to understand how research works and understanding, you know, school districts really intimately and recognizing some of the social and psychological factors that were really implement, in, uh, sorry, really impacting the ability to have this shared language and transparency and change. And so that was how I spent my last three years. Um, 
you know, lots of looking at it in terms of everything from policy, business school, you know, neuroscience, learning science, um, leadership theory, uh, to try and understand what's going on in education. So to be, um, to be really transparent to the listeners, yeah. uh, when we were preparing for this podcast, you jokingly was like, hey, I can go really dark and talk about right. all of the obstacles and like why innovation and change and creativity isn't moving beyond pockets of classrooms and teachers. Yeah. Or we can go on the positive side and like, hey, here's what we can do to make this change. But I honestly think we should do both. So yeah. making the purpose of this episode to, to just help people understand like what are the obstacles that are in place? Because I think well, what happened is, you know, you almost see uh, paralyzed is the wrong word it's too powerful of a word, but you see teachers that are like, we have desire, we want to, we might even have the resources or the devices or the money, um, but there's something getting in the way. And it's hard as an outsider to come in working with a school to pinpoint it. But what have you seen? Like, what are the dominant obstacles to innovation or to moving beyond small incremental change or small examples of change? It's my new favorite word, institutional isomorphism. Um, so, Basically, what it means is this, if you think about schools as institutions, and, the, you know, the education system, if you take a historical approach to it, has a really fascinating history. You think about, like, why we have schools, and I've been having this conversation lately, there's this over, like, gross, oversimplified, like, origin myth that, oh, it's the factory model of school, which is kind of silly, because it's leaving off all kinds of other factors of history that's formed culture. So if you think about, to start with a child, right? So think about how a kid forms their identity. It's not just that like this kid suddenly is like, oh, this is who I am. They're impacted by their parents, their friends, their school, their environment, right? It's an entire ecology that forms the, like, the identity of a, of a child or of an adult. The same thing happened with schools. And if we look at it from a historical perspective, there is, you know, the, the idea of the common school emerged because of urbanization and, you know, influxes of immigrants. And it was actually a dark time in U.S. history um, in the, you know, 1840s where they were having a lot of discrimination issues around the idea of, like, what does it mean to be an American? And it was very anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and it was very pro-Anglo-Saxon Protestant. So the school, school itself, like, as a system, was founded on a very narrow set of beliefs. And then as you move forward in history and you get towards that industrial revolution, the thinkers of the time, the people that were pushing like scientific management principles and, you know, values of standardization and efficiency, they started to gain traction. So it was this idea of we've got all these immigrants, all these people, urbanization, how do we make school more efficient? So that, that's where that notion of a factory model came in. And then at the same time as all of that, you get educational thinkers, right? So, you know, the first education thinkers were the behaviorists, you know, like Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs, right? Um, Thorndike, Skinner, Watson, the people that really believed that education had to do with stimulus and response. I ask you a question, there's only one answer. All of that ultimately kind of became the identity on which schools and the institution of education was founded. Um, and it's what became uh, what researchers like David Hayek and Larry Cuban call the grammar of school. Like it's this entrenched mental model. Like this is what school's supposed to be. And when you have your whole culture and your history that's based on something, 
And now along comes technology as a turning point. Technology itself and digital tools in particular undermine all of those structures that have been institutionalized over time. You know, we don't have to be inside of a school to learn. I don't need a teacher as a single expert. There's no reason why I have to work lockstep through a curriculum based on how much time I spend in a seat. And so when you have this, you know, this new thing that comes in and it totally threatens all of the structures on which somebody has based their identity, it's like social, uh, psychological crisis. All of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this is impacting everything that I know and everything that I've based my identity. And where right. that really comes into play too is it undermines um, hierarchical power structures, like which was I saw with school leaders where if you increase communication and you increase transparency, it threatens authority because now suddenly people know what you know or what you do or what you think. That's right. really threatening. So grab on, grab on to where you're going with that, just so yeah. I can pause for a second, because I don't want you to lose track. And, and I'm, you know, as always, just fascinated with the whole story that you're presenting. But you talk about it as an identity crisis and yeah. like, not just for leadership, but for teachers in the classroom. I think certainly mm -hmm. power structures, organization, the directed mile of, uh, model of information. We, we, you and I have talked quite a bit about the economy of information changes entirely. Uh-huh. And that creates this, this unsettled, I don't know, it, it throws things up into the air and leaves them completely unsettled. Right. And when you get unsettled with all of this, so you have all of this unsettlement and you've got, you know, teachers who are now having to question, you know, really question sort of their identity as educators because these things have undermined it potentially. So one of the things I did was I looked at it from a social psychological perspective. And if you consider with the you know identity models in terms of how different people of minority cultures might associate with a majority culture so whether that's an immigrant whether it's um you know a non-native language speaker there's you know in the literature there's different ways that people typically react but the first reaction is typically to pull inside and to reject whatever view is threatening that sense of identity it's like self-preservation if I tell you you're wrong, if I say that that's not for me, if I say I don't like it, if I say that doesn't impact me, I'm protecting my identity. And I don't have to acknowledge that maybe I need to, you know, engage in reflection and, you know, some introspection and figure out, well, what might I want to change personally? And that's a real, that's a real crisis. Um, and so where, yeah, as I said to Greg, I can get really dark, but one of the challenges is when you're basically looking at how do we overcome you know, fear and concerns and this sense of I'm trying to desperately hold on to everything I've known before versus I kind of have the self-efficacy to say, okay, I'm willing to step back, admit I don't know everything and try and learn something new. I mean, that's a really daunting prospect. What do you do then? So if, if, it's, the case that, if, that, if it's the case that that's happening, before you is a solution then and i don't want to jump to right like how do we solve the problem or what is possible but is, is this implying that before any substantial changes to be made um you have to define who the school is and what we value and what we know and what we don't know like we were talking to laura fleming on an earlier episode and she was saying how you can't really create an effective makerspace unless you can answer your why question before you start buying stuff 
but the the instance in schools tends to be let's let's buy the stuff or expect change to happen but not try to figure out why we're doing it or what's going on i i think absolutely i think the first piece before trying any initiative and i don't think it matters if it's you know a new reading initiative or a new technology initiative or anything else but is to understand what is the sense of community that you already have in place because one of the pieces that does support change is the idea of having that supportive professional community in place that already has a sense of trust. You know, do I trust all of my colleagues so that when I don't understand something, I feel comfortable going to them and saying, I can't do this, I need your help. You know, do I have enough confidence in, you know, working with the people in my building to not feel, you know, inadequate if I make a mistake? So, especially for school leaders, I think one of the biggest challenges is how do you first build that sense of, you know, learning community and a community that really values, like we're going to grow together, we're going to do this together, um, you know, to have that shared understanding of what they're trying to achieve. Like I found myself saying a lot when I was working through my dissertation project is how do you identify the greater purpose? Like the greater purpose isn't a maker space. And if it is, then we need to have a different conversation. Like, what do you really want to have happen? And until everyone can sort of build a sense of community around whatever that greater purpose might be, it's just one more thing that's starting to feel like that threat. Um, you know, Beth, you, um, as you were speaking, you're talking about the supportive community and trust. And I think that goes together with, uh, my experience in walking into schools and which schools are being unsettled in a positive way and which schools are being unsettled in a way that is hurting them. And um, you go in and try and make an assessment to like where to move forward or how to serve them. And I think part of what you said that really I like is the idea of creating this supportive community and trust, but also just maybe just bearing the problem together. If you have individual teachers and individual administrators feeling unsettled, feeling undermined, um, and they're dealing with that on their own, that's, that's a lot to work through. But if you can gather that struggle together and, and make it a problem that they all bear together, I think that um, that's the cultural shift that's then taking place and it requires uh, communication. But, but, but so that we don't get too dark, then let me kind of redirect a question at you then. How would you suggest that schools that find themselves in this situation like set out on a solution. I'm going to guess that you have examined this problem. You probably have some, if not a roadmap or a couple of beginning avenues that they can go to approach to either create that greater purpose or that why, or, or like how to create a vision together. I mean, I think before you can even have a vision, you have to have language. And I, that was a big, a big idea that sort of emerged out of my research where I found is like, we can't have a vision of what we're trying to do if we don't share a language. Um, and I was talking with Will Richardson about this a couple weeks ago. If you sat everybody down in your school and you said to them, define learning, can you actually have a conversation where everyone's talking about what student learning is? Because that in itself, I bet if we had, you know, even the three of us, if we said what is learning and what makes great learning, we might all come up with different definitions. And if we're in a school, that'd be one thing that we would need to have some, you know, common understanding of. Um, you know, the other piece of it, too, is it's not something that just can happen. 
um, I took a macro level view at one point and I said, well, what makes a great, you know, internationally, if I look outside the US, like where are things happening really, really well? And a distinguishing factor, if you look at super high performing systems, and I'm going to define these high performing systems, not based on test scores, um, but based on the idea of does their education policy really encourage deeper learning, deep inquiry, project based learning, those ideas. Um, do they really have a valued teacher profession? Meaning, you know, teachers have some autonomy, they have a lot of control in their classrooms. Um, and then what's sort of the general, you know, sort of social political atmosphere of the area? Because that's an important part of education. You know, if you've got a country that values, you know, freedom of speech and free thinking versus a more, you know, autocratic authoritarian regime, that's a little bit different. So if I look at those high-performing systems based on the context, the real distinguishing factor is the amount of time that those schools dedicate to building that language and then ultimately building a vision around what does, you know, what do we think great learning looks like? And then what was shocking was discovering that great systems spend probably three to four hours a month with the leadership team just talking about how do we inspire more leadership and what makes great leadership. So not a meeting on like, you know, bus schedules and grades and those kinds of things, but a deep conversation three to four hours a month on just how can we continue to improve as leaders and how do we inspire leaders within our context. That's a whole different ball game. <laughs> and that you found is potentially a recipe for like teacher empowerment for them to be willing to take a risk? I mean, I think, yeah, if you look at the leadership, right? So it's, and I focus more on the top, sort of at the upper echelons of the organization. So I was looking at the, the leader level and then down to sort of that te official teacher leader level, like the, the coach or the coordinator. And that one of the key things is to make sure that there is this distributed leadership and that all of these leaders are considered professionals. And that it's really breaking some of that like top-down control that we tend to still see in a lot of schools where you know the edict comes down from the central office and it goes to the principals and they keep pushing it down pushing it down and in like highly successful systems there's a lot more communication a lot more transparency and a lot more sharing across all of those different layers and a real decentralization of control so the teachers are really empowered as leaders to make the right decisions and to lead with their colleagues. And it's much less from sort of a top down. It's interesting because in the role that, that we all have with that tech teacher, we're in this really fortunate position where we get to visit all kinds of schools from, you know, super um, kind of uh, financially exclusive independent schools to uh, your kind of really traditional public school in a city. And it's purely anecdotal, but seeing things like in certain instances, there tends to be a pattern of schools where the teachers are willing to take risks because they feel empowered. Mm -hmm. And then I wonder, you know, do they have these characteristics that you're talking about? Is it a culture that can be created by a principal? Um, how long do these shifts take to create this 
this groundswell of like we have um, leadership at multiple levels and it's not coming from above and the teachers feel like they're constantly being told about initiatives that they don't, they don't have a say in, they don't have a voice in, they don't know what they mean. You talked about this idea of language, like the language that's being used. Of course, you know, we speak the same language, but do we have common language amongst us within our community? And that leads me to my next question. Then, Sean, I promise you can get the next one. I won't do this again. Um, what is the what is the classroom teacher to do if they are in an environment where these characteristics are not in place, but they either want to or or have the ability to, or they are that kind of exception to what their environment is telling them they should be. So, Larry Cuban, who's professor emeritus at Stanford, he's written zillions of books has this great saying where he's like teachers are actually the ultimate policymaker because it doesn't matter what policy gets pushed down from the top when a teacher decides they want to do something they're going to shut the door and they're going to do it and that's a really tongue-in-cheek kind of response but i think in reality if you're in a situation and one of the things that i observed um, as i was trying to understand the problem is when you have these new ideas that want to take hold, think of it almost like a looping cycle, right? So you get the teacher that's super excited, has this great new idea. They've got it going in their classroom and they try to like kick it onto a cycle. They want to push it to their colleagues. They want to push it up to the school. One of two, there's two things that can happen. The organization itself, so their colleagues, might continue sort of that groundswell momentum. Like if they've got some colleagues on board, you know, like a ripple effect, right? They're going to get it going. They'll start pushing that cycle. The challenge, and this was what drove me to really look at leadership, is if this building leadership or whatever that next tier up doesn't continue to push the cycle and instead they try to squash it, I mean, this is where I go dark again. Like, there's really nothing that teacher can do except shut the door and do what they're going to do in their classroom. So there has to be that environment. And that's why I think it's really hard, you know, because you want to be able to say, oh, yeah, one person can make all of these changes and do everything. But we really have to look at the entire environment because the environment has to support the spread of the ideas. And, and I think of all of us, think about all the different schools we've ever worked in. We've seen places where you know, administrators have been super supportive and they help keep the ball rolling and they're very positive. And we've seen it where they can potentially come in and squash things that have all the best intentions. And then, you know, again, the teacher kind of has a choice. They can do what they want in their small space or they might have to find a way to either, you know, get in a new space. You know, um, I, I think what you're saying is true. And I, I, as you talk about closing the door, those are the moments where the teacher decides not to try and shift culture and you're you're making gains but those gains are contained to one room and they don't have the chance to really spread and if we're talking i mean key to what you're saying is that we're, we're the work we're doing is to change culture um then really what we have to do is keep those doors open as much as possible um so you specifically mentioned institutional isomorphism and you talked generally about it. Right. And since you were talking about language, how about if, could I get you to try to give us a, a short or a concise definition of institutional isomorphism? <laughs> yeah, so what it basically means is this. When an institution is threatened, it pulls into itself. And it okay. refuses to move and it refuses to change. Okay. And there was, there was a seminal paper written in 1990 by... Um, it was Chubb and Mo, and they really frame the idea that any reform that happens in education 
until it actually addresses the institution itself is never really going to take hold because it's that institution that is the real issue. So any, any teacher you've talked to about anything, as soon as they can say something like, I have policy I have to adhere to, I have standards I have to adhere to, I have curriculum I have to adhere to, I have any, any of those institutionalized things, until all of those things are kind of addressed and pulled away, then the institution itself, everything's just a band-aid. And I think, I know you guys talked to Martin Moran, and he had an eloquent statement when I heard him speak um, back at South by Southwest, and he said, look, you know, we're starting something new. We're going to build our own institution, and we're going to do it with what we think is right. And I know that's really hard when you've got established places, but I also think that's why there's so many new school models that are cropping up, whether you look at like the big picture learning schools, there's the summit schools, there's Lindsay public schools, there's the deeper learning network, the new tech network, all of those new school models are coming in because they're trying to create a new institution to break out of kind of how they're bound by their identity in the past. So then Beth, I, I think it's really exciting to talk. Uh, talking to Martin Moran about how he's building a school was super exciting. Yeah. And hearing the stories of all those other schools is very exciting too. And I think that that's a clear solution. But so many schools are established and you have these higher learning institutions that have set norms. So give someone who, give someone who doesn't have the vast knowledge that you have a way to start like, what is the beginning point? How do we start creating a change to prevent institutional isomorphism from shutting down a change in a school that's been established for a very, very long time? What are some maybe waypoints that you can direct them to? So I think the first thing is, the first thing to break is the idea of linear planning. So much in education has to do with like, ultimately down the road, we're gonna have this improvement in student achievement scores. That's always where it points to. Like everything always starts stuck in that sort of institutional frame. Um, one of the things I've been looking at a lot is the idea of improvement science, which came out of public health and the Carnegie Foundation's doing tremendous work with this. And improvement science says, start small, learn fast. And instead of saying, we're gonna institute this change and it's going to change you know, our math and English scores, you would say, okay, in the next three days, I'm gonna make this really small change. But not only am I gonna make whatever this change is, I'm gonna start by answering three essential questions. Okay, so the first one is, I'm gonna have a very clear goal. What do I wanna accomplish? The second thing I'm going to answer is, why do I think the change that I'm trying to make is going to actually accomplish that goal? And then the third thing is, how will I know if it works? What is going to be this observable measure? And I'm picking teeny, teeny, tiny. And an observable measure might be something like, more teachers smile when they walk in the door. Or more students feel comfortable raising their hand in class. Small, small observable measure. So you start with that small thing in a very small context, and then you start to expand it from there. So I've started this in one building, then I do two buildings, then I do three buildings. Or I do one classroom and then, you know, a different grade level. And very slowly, you scale that one small idea up. As soon as it starts scaling, you start another really small idea. Ultimately, everything has to align to whatever this, like, 
greater purposes. And there's still sort of that conversation, but too often the greater purpose feels overwhelming. So it's really about saying, I'm going to start super, super small and constantly be measuring to know that something's going to work because there's too many times and we've all seen it, someone implements some huge plan and then goes, well, I wonder if that did anything. And this really asks you to start the other way around and know what is it you're really trying to see before you even get going. It, you made me think about the idea of rollout fatigue and that sometimes we, we want to make something so big and so epic that there's a principal on the stage with lasers and light shows talking to everyone and clapping and, and marketing. And it sounds like you're suggesting something completely opposite, like mm -hmm. extremely, extremely small that doesn't alter or change things too much and make a legitimate change at a much more micro level. Yeah. Um, there's a great quote. It's like the history of American education is implement fast, learn slow, burn goodwill as you go. And it's, um, it's a, from Brake and Gomez. Um, they have a book, Learning to Improve How American Schools Can Get Better at Getting Better. And, and, that, and that's what they all come down. They come down to this idea. It's like start small, learn fast. And it's about this constant cycle of inquiry. And too often we go, yeah, we're going to implement this huge new program. And then everyone gets frustrated and it's overwhelming and it's too much to handle. Um, it's, I mean, in a lot of ways too, it's why... I think I've talked to you guys before. I love the work they're doing at Bellevue Public Schools in Nebraska. And one of the reasons why I absolutely love the way they've rolled out their whole moving towards one-to-one -to -one program, it's been going on since 2013, but it started really small with a small cohort of teachers who are super excited about it. They built internal capacity and then they started the next cohort and then the next cohort. And over these years, they've built this shared language. They've built that common vision. They've got everybody on board. Um, and yeah, it's taken them, it's been five years and they still don't quite have the entire, I think this year they'll have their whole school district one-to-one, -one, but that's a five-year rollout. Not what you and I usually see, which is, you know, two years, three years. So think, but think about it. if you use the model that you talked about to even go like super micro, creating creating an environment where the teacher can go to the principal or the department head or the team leader and say, "This is one small change I'd like to make because this is what I'd like to see my kids experiencing." Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't work, like what has really been lost outside of maybe even one project or one lesson or one class period? as opposed to the model you talked about, like we are going one-to-one, -one. we are implementing this learning management system, we have no idea why we're doing it or what the outcome should look like, but we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And then, so like then, like, I like this idea of like, you know, as soon as that change starts to take hold, um, scale it up a little bit and implement the next one, maybe align to the same goals, or maybe it's like, hey, we're gonna try a different outcome here. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems like that could be the path for the classroom teacher because I, I know the, the strategy I took was um, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, which wasn't always right. the best strategy. One, but also is pretty effective when you have institutional barriers to doing something that you believe in. Right. But so I wonder if this, this could be a model of, you know, let's not go huge and then wonder what the impact was. Let's have intention with what we want to see happen and then to the best of our ability, create some mechanism, whether it's technology or not, it's kind of irrelevant, like what the tool is going to be to, to get towards that end goal and then have some way to evaluate like, hey, this was a success or we need yeah. to make a change or we can't even introduce this to anyone before we 
you know, measure what happened. But also think about the institutional risk when you're throwing it all out there for a change you'd like to implement that you're not sure if you can scale it up or if it's going to be the thing that works. And you've got the whole institution throwing itself behind something. And when it, if it does go wrong, think of what a hit the credibility of the institution takes. So as you're talking now, I'm thinking about like, you're placing huge bets, huge bets on unknowns. Whereas you're saying it's not to bring gambling up, but um, it's like gambling bets small on, on sure bets and then scale those things up as they go. And it, it, it just sounds like common sense for a healthy institution when you think of it that way. And remember, too, that within schools as institutions, the variability, I think that's the last piece to think about yeah. with this idea of scaling. You want to start something really small and then tweak it as it goes into different contexts, whether that's different subject areas, different grade levels. It's not necessarily that there's going to be that one thing that goes perfectly. It's this constant adaptation so that you can roll it through to ultimately bring those ideas, even if it's not you know, a precise replica. Yeah. And if you're talking about shock to a system, right? Like if you, if you change something really, really big, all of these school-related policies have to change. So many different like meta discussions have to take place and that can be exhausting, which I think leads to institutional uh, mm-hmm. fatigue. But if you do something smaller like this, I think what you're, you, it isn't going to necessarily force bigger changes in, in a rush, but it can allow you more time to be thoughtful. In a way, it sounds to me like, personalized learning for individual schools too. You're not taking someone else's initiative. You're going to build it and construct it in small ways with small challenges that are going to give you very specific feedback about how your institution reacts to the change. The other, and another idea that popped up was if there's very varying levels of comfort or personality types, I remember doing an activity many years ago of like, are you a North um, south, east, or west personality. And they, they define them the way they want it, but the north would be, just give me the idea and I'll go for it. You don't need to prove anything to me, like I'll try it. But it could give those south or east or west personalities, the people that want to talk about it, that want to see it, that want it proven, that want to evaluate the efficacy before they try it. It would give them time as opposed to going, guess what? Everyone's changing at the same pace at the same time and we're not talking about it. There's, there's no room for discussion. So it seems like it could be a model that works. So we are, we are up on time, and now this gets us to the best part, the end of the podcast. This has been awesome. I think we shifted from maybe a little bit gloomy to a little bit brighter towards the end, which is good. It wasn't all dark and all light, which is great. So, Beth, are you ready? What is right, the artist, ready. What's the artist, the song, or the album that's been on repeat lately? Okay, this is going to sound horrible. I have completely turned the radio and everything off all summer. Okay. That's it's, been like, it's been quiet. I've had the windows open. Um, yeah, I got really flustered. And so I turned everything off. I have no idea. I have no clue what's going on in music right now. It's probably good. Good for a little bit of mental health by checking out from that. I'll take it. I guess I like I have not had the radio on in months. I have no idea what's going on. Think how excited you'll be when you go back. Sometimes taking a break from those things like that makes you able to, I don't know. It's like the cracker for your palate. Look, I've gone to alcohol again, Greg. We really need to stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Next but question. Next question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You clear your palate, you can start fresh. Okay. Um, you know, I have, I have several here and I, I'm trying to ask a question that won't lead us back to the Muppets because I know from past experience that that is really right. Um, let's see. When you were a little kid, what uh-huh. did you imagine you would do for a living? 
Oh, I was going to be a dolphin trainer. <laughs> I, um, I was all excited about being like a marine biologist and working at, at uh, SeaWorld until I flunked marine biology in high school. But I was going to train dolphins. <laughs> I never, I didn't see that one coming. I, I actually have my first cousin is a dolphin trainer. So if you want to connect, I can try and you can have a little dive into that world. Sweet. So, so Beth, and I'll, I'll give you a repeat. So here we go. Question number three to wrap this up. Um, and I asked this of Carrie Gallagher in our previous, um, a previous episode, binge watch a show or read a book. And if it's the book, what book would you read and then tell someone else to read? And if it's the show, what show are you binge watching? I'm reading lots of books right now. I'm so happy to be back into fiction. I can't even tell you. Um, I just finished The Boys in the Boat. I just started one about Einstein's wife. And then I have also been reading, I, I got to admit it, I love the David Baldacci, like totally cheesy spy murder mystery adventure. Um, so it sounds to me like you've spent a lot of time in this topic, but you're just trying to kind of step back from it a little bit and kind of, I don't know, maybe take a break from education for the summer. Um, I've been taking a break from education. I'm still writing a bunch um, and doing some other projects, but I've really enjoying like sort of back to fiction. Yeah. It's been really nice. That's and I'm reading on paper, except I have one small problem that I desperately need reading glasses. And so the book that has small type, I'm really struggling with. That's you know, funny. if you were reading that electronically, you could just increase the size of the phone. Oh, jeez. Oh, well, I have learned this. I'm not using my phone very much because I can't see it. Huh. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Beth, since, since you did the favor of, of joining the show with Sean and I, um, I know you have a session up for South by Southwest, correct, this year? Uh, yeah, I'm doing one with Dave Quinn, um, where we got really inspired by Back to the Future like the movies, there's the Back to the Future trilogy. And so we've got a Back to the Future theme and we really want to think about how do we find not the Marty McFlies, but the Georges of the education world and have conversation and kind of having the conversations that people aren't having. So how do we, again, that how do we really start to define learning? What do we really want to see sort of beyond the, you know, the buzzwords or the hype, but what are we, how are we really getting down to the meat of things? So we're trying to do a campfire talk. We'll see how cool. Yeah, so yeah. check out the South by Southwest panel picker. Give Beth and Dave's session a vote up. Um, see if we can get them there to present this year. So Beth, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hopefully, you know, people saw value in the conversation. They see, you know, the, some bright sign and some potential for change, even if their institution is going to have some obstacles in the way. And Sean, any final thoughts before we wrap this episode up? One, first of all, just thank you for such a very, you know, you know so much about it, but you also know so much depth about it. And I think you did a good job of kind of condensing that into a way of us, for us to take a new look at education and kind of explore some of the preconceived notions that we have. But also then tell us a place where people can go and look to see more of your writing or to see uh, some of the other work that you're doing. Is there a website? Uh, sure. So I write the EdTech Researcher blog on EdWeek with Justin Reich and Douglas Kiang. So there's plenty there. And then I write on Edutopia, and then I have my site at brholland.com, and I'm, I'm around. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much, Beth. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks so much Beth. for having me. So We've Been Thinking, and the podcast is brought to you by EdTech Teacher. To learn more about EdTech Teacher, visit us at edtechteacher.org. To learn more about So We've Been Thinking, 
Visit the website at sowe'vebeenthinking.org. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.